Conclusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we visit Skepticamp for the game of life and bike jackets with turn and stop signals. But first up, here's the news. Three D printed toothbrushes. Using a regular toothbrush, it may take you two minutes to clean your teeth. With an electric toothbrush, you might get that down to one minute. With the new denture-based toothbrush, three D printed, you can clean your teeth in six seconds. A three D computer model is made by your dentist, either by scanning or by making an impression of your teeth. You end up with a plastic shape with lots of bristles, perfectly shaped. To fit your teeth. You just have to bite and grind your teeth about 10 times and the angled bristles will simultaneously clean every part of your teeth and mouth at the same time. Parallel brushing. You can find out more at blizzardent.com. Nuclear fusion power is a tiny step closer. The US National Ignition Facility Weapons Research Lab has caused more energy to come out of a pellet of hydrogen than went in. This is not enough to create a self-sustaining reaction that can generate electricity, but it's an important step in that direction and a world first. The National Ignition Facility fired 192 lasers at a pea-sized ball of heavy hydrogen and caused it to compress so much that the hydrogen atoms joined together to become helium atoms, releasing heat and neutrons. More heat came out of the pellet than went into it, but the amount of power coming out is still less than what's required to power the laser system. When you can generate more power than you use up, then you have a commercially interesting generator. The power comes from the binding energy of the heavy hydrogen atoms nuclei when they join together to become helium. Hydrogen's nucleus has only one proton, helium's has two. The experiment this year generated three times more energy than any of the facility's previous experiments, 8,000 joules. So 1.7 million joules went into the lasers and 8,000 joules came out of the pellet. The lasers are very inefficient at turning electricity into heat. The European nuclear fusion research reactor being built will be using magnetic confinement instead of laser implosion. Nuclear fusion usually uses deuterium and tritium, hydrogen with an extra neutron, or heavy hydrogen. The fuel is clean and safe. You could drink it. The waste product is helium, which isn't radioactive and doesn't chemically react with anything. It's safe. The only nasty part is that the nuclear fusion reaction generates enormous power and extra neutrons. The enormous power is great for generating electricity, but would have to be designed carefully to avoid explosions. The extra neutrons would have to be contained, and any material they hit will become radioactive. So the nuclear generator itself becomes the radioactive waste at the end of the generator's lifetime. 
Nuclear fusion is the process that drives the sun and the stars. And the process that explodes H-bombs. It's very powerful and abundant. If we can tame it, we will never have to dig up any other fuel. Seawater has lots of heavy hydrogen. Strangely, this milestone almost wasn't passed because the funding for the project was sort of cut a year ago and the whole facility was supposed to spend all its time and staff on nuclear weapons research, leaving the long-term power research by the side. They lost government confidence when the energy coming out of their experiments didn't match their predictions, when they didn't meet a deadline for producing a breakthrough, because, you know, scientific breakthroughs are always able to arrive on time and to order. The facility has cost over $5 billion and cost $230 million a year to run, and it hasn't produced any power yet. They quietly spent a year assessing what was wrong, and then this August did their experiments anyway, and made a world first step towards nuclear fusion power, only a year later than the government deadline. Fortunately, the amount of energy released from their recent experiments closely matched the predictions. Nuclear fusion has been 30 years away for the last 30 years. Maybe now it's only 29 years away. But that's okay. In a sense, all solar power is from nuclear fusion, where the fusion reactor is a safe 150,000 kilometres away. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, Skepticamp. Skepticamp is a free skeptical unconference that uses the Barcamp informal model. The most interesting discussions come from between sessions at a conference and in the bar afterwards. So bar camp is just those bits. You arrive at Skepticamp, or any unconference, find a timetable of rooms and 15-minute spots, and some post-it notes. You can write the title of your talk onto a post-it note and post it onto a free time and room. Everybody attending Skepticamp is welcome to offer a talk, with an emphasis on the talks having lots of interaction and questions and answer. At Skepticamp, Robin Hilliard gave a talk about Conway's Game of Life. Robin Hilliard is a programmer, boat builder, and aeroplane designer. In the pub afterwards, I asked Robin to tell me about the game of life and how it relates to real life. And yeah. so we're here at Skepticamp, where you've given a talk on the game of life. It's designed by, uh, no, I just know his last name is Conway. It was designed back in the 60s, and it's a, it's a thing called a cellular automata. And if you imagine a grid like a, just a piece of grid paper and some rules about when to colour in. You have multiple turns and every turn there are rules about when to colour in a square in a grid based on and when to not colour in a, grid, a square in a grid. And it's an incredibly simple set of rules. Basically, if you're currently alive, if your square is currently alive and you have two or three neighbours, then 
uh, you can stay alive, otherwise you'll become dead. If you're currently dead, you have to have three or more neighbours, and then you'll become alive. You can uh, start out just with some little experiments and, and seeing how things go, but the amazing thing about life is uh, how quickly really interesting things start to happen, start to emerge out of uh, what you see on the screen that are entirely unexpected. And it's a fantastic example of what uh, people call emergence, which is basically properties, um, complex behaviour and properties emerging out of very simple rules. And it's, it's sort of very interesting what it tells us about how, you know, even a very basic level in maths, you know, th that uh, there is a tendency towards complex patterns to occur naturally. For sure. So basically, there's just some very simple rules, in this case on something like a checkerboard, and you end up with very complex behaviour that can look like it's alive. Yeah, and it's, it's funny, one of the things I tried to point out is how alive it looks to us, and that as sceptics, maybe we should be asking, well, that makes it quite easy to fool ourselves into thinking something is alive, or what, what looks alive maybe isn't alive, or maybe what looks dead could be alive. It sort of pulls, pulls that out and says, you know, if you just think something is alive or dead from looking at it, do you really, does, do you really know anything about that? Yeah, uh, you know, have, you really learned, have you really learned anything um, just by looking at it? Or you shouldn't be too quick to judge, I guess. Well, absolutely, and after all, what, what is the definition of what's alive? Yeah, well, that's the, that's the thing that, the way the game plays with your mind, is it really sort of blurs the line. Because if something much simpler than an atom, you know, one of these cells with these simple rules, can uh, exhibit this sort of behaviour, yes. then what could happen with an atom or a molecule? Well, absolutely. I mean, when I first encountered Conway's Game of Life, it seemed to me it was perfect proof that in the real world, simple rules iterated over and over and over can lead to complex behaviour like life. Yeah, ex exactly. And I mean, and that's the, the the funny thing is that there are a lot of hobbyists who play with the game of life, and they evolve these fantastic machines that can print out messages and um, produce little creatures that scuttle across the screen and uh, build permanent structures, all, all of this sort of stuff. But the thing to make clear when you're showing people that is, it's not really that those people designed those structures. They're basically more like they're curating a garden of creatures that they discovered and then basically orchestrated into, into doing things that people found amusing. So it, it, and that's not, really, that, that's not really evolution because the factor that causes those particular patterns to be repeated by being downloaded and being shared amongst life hobbyists, that evaluation criteria is completely outside their universe. It's like if ha having us evolving because something ex ex completely external to the universe is uh, choosing who's, who's fittest and who isn't. Well, isn't it? So it's artificial selection, like if you're breeding animals or breeding plants. Exactly, yeah, where people are actually selecting. The, the, the fantastic thing is even the simplest things like gliders, which are a, very, a little thing that scuttles across the screen and probably one of the first things you'll see if you start mucking around. Or I, I don't know if anyone would have actually designed them to do that. I think if you put a random grid together, they will pretty much the first time you randomly assign a grid with some dots and set it off, gliders will scatter out of the wreckage. And um, it's more, even though simple things are discovered, they're things that are discovered and then curated and assembled into, um, assembled into larger objects. And you can do basic computing with them, can't you? Yes, um, people have shown that they are what you call Turing complete, which means you can actually build something called a Turing machine, which Alan Turing wrote as a paper before computers existed in the late 1930s. And it's actually some of the most amazing, along with Gödel's incompleteness theorem, those are probably two of the most amazing findings in logic 
because they actually tell us about well, Alan's the the, um, the the thing that he basically proved with a Turing machine was that uh, there is an infinite number of problems that cannot be solved with a process that you can write down in a finite amount of time, which isn't quite logical, but sort of feels nice for f in a free will sort of uh, <laughs> well, that's... free will sort of way. But I don't think that actually was anyone's actually positing that that's a, that that's a, a consequence of the Turing uh, the blank tape holding problem that he did. Well, that's the limits of computability, isn't it? It's what yeah. you can compute. Yeah, what you can compute with a process that you wrote down uh, that you could guarantee to finish in a finite amount of time. And what they've shown is that you can actually build a Turing machine in the game of life, which shows that uh, the game of life is just is equivalent to any a, a computer, a modern computer, but just incredibly inefficient. <laughs> well, that's just a matter of how fast the cellular automata are processing, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, maybe if if you had if speed wasn't uh, wasn't uh, a factor, then yes, it would be just as good as your uh, as your Mac laptop or, or something, I suppose. So, if you had say a supercomputer running cellular automata, it could run universal Turing machines, which would be general computers, which could run the game of life. Yeah, I think someone's already actually already done that. They've done, and the funny thing is that's actually what Turing's paper showed. Was Turing paper was showing that you could build a simulation of a Turing machine inside a Turing machine. So basically, VMware and virtual machines before computers existed, they were suggested in a paper as part of Turing's proof that because you can build a simulation of a Turing machine in a Turing machine, you can do some funny stuff with set theory about the set of programs and wind up proving absolutely solidly that there is this infinite number of non-computable non problems. And which game of life software are you playing with? Is that oh, I'm using Golly. Golly is probably one of the first ones that will pop up if you look for one to download. It seems really nice. It's Mac and PC and Linux. And uh, Sorry, I shouldn't have said it like that. Now I'll get hate mail. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, 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 it's quite fun and I use that today for my presentation. I, I gave this talk because it was something when I first came across the game of life when I was a teenager. I re it really blew my mind that because it was the first real example of emergence that I saw and where I probably had some you know uh, there was probably some room to be a bit agnostic about some questions about you know about uh, religion and things like that that really I think it's a real it's a real touchstone for people who want to who want to believe want to believe that sounds dangerous I should question myself about that but people who are who it really shows that things really can arise out of nothing it's, it's, it's one of the it's one of the great demos for the something from nothing argument not in the sort of quantum physics uh, vacuum energy stuff but but in the, the that things can assemble you know that patterns can assemble and uh, out of out of way the, the least expected places Robin Hilliard thank you very much my pleasure that was Robin Hilliard at Skepticamp talking about Conway's Game of Life and Cellular Automata. You can follow Robin on Twitter at Rob Hilliard and check out his work website, rocketboots.com.au. At Skepticamp, Alastair De Silva spoke about making cool stuff at the Make Hack Void Hackerspace in Canberra. In the pub, Alastair spoke to me about hacking nightlights and making bike jackets that signal when you want to turn. Alastair, you gave a talk about hackerspaces. Uh, yeah, that's right. So uh, hackerspaces are a global movement where uh, basically people get together technical communities to build community workshops where they can get together and work on projects and build cool things. So what sort of cool things are you building? 
So my wife uh, Ruth and I are currently working on a um, wearable computing project. So basically what we've done is we've developed a little development board with RGB LEDs on it, um, a microcontroller and a Bluetooth radio. Now the microcontroller has full control over all the lights on it and can communicate with other Bluetooth devices like your phone. So the idea is you can write a little app that runs on this board and controls the lights and does things like fetch data off the internet and controls the lights. But um, because uh, we're really after wearable computing, once you've got your prototype working, you can pop the LEDs in the microcontroller off this board and stitch them into clothing using conductive thread. And now suddenly you've got a garment that can light up and interact with the environment, uh, react to data coming off the internet like weather data, for example, or maybe change colours depending on the proximity to another one of these devices. So how many LEDs are we talking about? On my current prototype I've got 24 RGB LEDs. That may go up in future. Probably we'd be looking at about 32 on the board as I shrink the uh, design down a bit. Cool. So people will wear this on a like, like a t-shirt? Uh, yeah, well, t-shirts, scarves. Um, the catch is that uh, washing these is going to be a bit tricky uh, so you may want to consider doing it on garments which aren't in direct contact with the body so for example scarves or a removable patch for a t-shirt um, you might be able to get away with washing them but I'm not providing any warranties on that so could you put it on a patch that attached with velcro uh, yeah that's right and in fact um, one use case that Ruth and I have straight away is that uh, we've started learning to ride motorcycles and uh, rider visibility is extremely important. It's your number one safety factor. Um, so what we want to do is actually build these into the backs of our motorcycle jackets to help increase our visibility. But because they're RGB and we've got full control of them, it means that when we brake we can have the entire back of our jacket light up red when we indicate, we can display arrows on the back of our jacket indicating the direction that we're turning in conjunction with the indicators on the bike. That's amazing. And with the Bluetooth attachment, does that mean you can program it by phone? Uh, yes. So, so the example that we've got at the moment was basically a Christmas project that we did last Christmas to teach Ruth how to program. Um, so what we did was we got this uh, nightlight that was uh, given to us and we pulled the bulb out of it and put the RGB LEDs inside connected to a similar microcontroller and a Bluetooth radio. Um, now, I've got an app on my phone right now which uh, will let me control the colours on the uh, on the nightlight. But because all the LEDs in it are individually controlled, it means I can do things like washing colour from top to bottom or left and right. Um, we also took the effort to map which colours on the LEDs, sorry, which LEDs, belong to which parts of the uh, nightlight, which is shaped like a robot. So I can, from my phone, say I want to make his head glow red, but his arms glow green. That's awesome. Now, I'm just thinking, if people are interested in that project, like, well, having a bike jacket that gives indication of when you're stopping and turning is pretty amazing. Uh, are you going to share any of this on the internet? Uh, yes, so all our designs are open sourced um, on our Hackerspaces website, makehackvoid.com. Um, it's all, all the sources there, the schematics are there, the circuit board layouts are also there, so anyone can take our designs, fabricate it themselves at home and build one for themselves. Um, 
My goal is that I'll actually have these available as a kit, so for people who don't have fabrication facilities, they'll be able to just order a kit and then play with the wearable computing technology at home. So this nightlight, is this one a nightlight that you bought and then hacked, or is this one you built? Uh, yeah, so this is one that we've bought and hacked, or rather was given to us as a gift. So what was the process of making, or well, being able to control the nightlight? So um, the first thing was, uh, I'm a very ground up person. Uh, so um, there's a popular runtime for microcontrollers out there called Arduino, but I'm not particularly happy with the way that's implemented, so I've got my own runtime called MHVLib. Um, the first step in this exercise was teaching MHVLib how to talk to these LEDs. So once I had written that, then the rest is really just up to your imagination. So you need to figure out what you want to achieve with the project and then build the code to ship the data from whatever you're interacting with to those LEDs. Did you have to take the nightlight apart to see which wires led to which part of the robot? Well, originally the nightlight was a standard 240 volt lamp. We completely gutted the uh, lamp out of it and the lamp holder. And we ended up using a uh, long piece of aluminium square profile. And that formed the basis for the LEDs. So the LEDs that we used in that particular project come on a flexible strip with uh, double-sided tape backing. So basically, you can just peel off the backing and stick the LEDs down wherever you like. So what we did was we installed the aluminium profile inside the nightlight and ran the LEDs up and down along that profile uh, so that it would display out the front, back, left and right of the robot nightlight. Well, basically, I think that the hackerspace movement is a really exciting new phenomenon. If your listeners have... Um, projects that they'd love to uh, get working on but don't necessarily have the skills to make it happen, go off and visit your local hackerspace. You should be able to find a hackerspace near you if you go to hackerspaces.org. Alastair De Silva, thank you very much. Great, thank you. That was Alastair De Silva, maker of cool things. You can find out more about his projects at makehackvoid.com. And now this week's three-minute thesis from the UTS Science Faculty. Students have three minutes to explain their research to educated laymen with only one slide. Here's Taryn Chalmers with her research, Assessing Cardiovascular Associations to Effective Disorders in Professional Drivers of Australia. Good afternoon. My name is Taryn Chalmers and today I would like to begin with a few questions for the audience. Who here catches a train to work? Who drives to work on roads shared with heavy vehicles? In Australia, trains move more commuters on a daily basis than any other form of transport. Without heavy vehicles, freight would not reach its destination. Now think about this. How would you feel if you, or somebody that you loved, was catching a train or driving beside a heavy vehicle that was operated by an individual who suffered from severe depression, causing a significant reduction in their ability to operate that vehicle? And how would you feel if you knew that this depression also caused an increased risk of the individual suffering from a sudden heart attack whilst driving. Would you feel safe? Do you remember the waterfall train accident? This occurred as, as a result of the driver having a sudden heart attack. This caused the train to derail and seven individuals lost their lives. Recent statistics have also suggested that as much as 15% of all Australian trucking accidents can be attributed to heart disease. 
The link between depression and altered cardiovascular function is of serious concern. In Australia, the presence and effect of depression within our professional driving industry has attracted minimal attention, despite recent studies suggesting that these individuals do exhibit a high percentage of depressive symptoms. This brings me to the aims of my project, which will look to assess the presence of depression in the truck and train driving industries of Australia and the effects of this depression on the cardiovascular system. Um, depression will be assessed using psychometric tools and an electrocardiogram will be used to assess heart function. This crucial research will aim to show that depression can in fact cause cardiac implications that are the precursor to cardiovascular disease. Now, a quick metaphor for you. Think about depression as the walls of a dam. When depression occurs, these dam walls break and the water rushes down and sweeps away an entire village. This village is the possible resulting cardiovascular disease. If we can manage depression within these industries, we may be able to stop these figurative dam walls breaking and reduce the risk of the village being swept away or developing cardiovascular disease. My project is geared to provide the foundation for the management of depression in the truck and train driving industries of Australia, influencing transport authority policies and legislation that is yet to be regulated within our country. By managing depression within these individuals, we may be able to reduce its role in the development of cardiovascular disease, improving overall health of these individuals and your commuter safety. Thank you very much. That was Taryn Chalmers with a three-minute thesis from the University of Technology, Sydney. You can find out more about the three-minute thesis competition at www.3minutethesis.org. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like our Facebook page and leave a comment. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai. We're syndicated on the National Science Foundation Science360 internet radio station when the government's working. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.